Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al. And I'm Grizz. This week, to coincide with the US President's visit, we're going to be discussing satire in the age of Trump. We'll be asking Simon Sharma whether this is a good moment for political comedy, how satirists have been forced to adapt to the Trump world, and whether satire can really change anything. So, hi, Al. Morning. How are you? I'm bearing up in this spirit-crushing week. You know, we have a, a government in meltdown. Two bloated has-beens have resigned in a huff. Football inexplicably decided not to come home after all, and I can't understand why. And, of course, we have the arrival of President Trump. Just, just to top it all off, just yeah. To cheer us all up. And with it, a, a giant, inflatable, baby blimp. Trump uh, floating gloriously across um, the mother of all parliaments. Which I think is going to be quite a happy or rather funny sight. I think good on Sadiq Khan for, um, you know, for allowing this. Yeah, I think good on Sadiq Khan. I'm not, I'm not certain that it's um, the, the most subtle and pointed satire of all time. No, I mean, I think an, an inflatable baby is always going to be a blunt instrument to mix metaphors. <laughs> yes, I think it is a blunt instrument, but blunt instruments are part of satire. Yeah, and that's something we're going to be talking about later with Simon Sharma. Historian, FT contributor. And most importantly... Long-time friend of this podcast. Simon, thank you for coming on the podcast. Mm, um, right now, I think there is a, a massive inflated orange Trump baby um, yeah. flying about above Westminster. Do you think that's a, a, a powerful satirical weapon or just a Well, he doesn't. He really doesn't like ridicule, but he's very good at being protected from it. And even if he's heard about it, he won't pay any attention to it. And, you know, unless it flies into his helicopter airspace, he's unlikely to be <laughs> confronted by it. You know, the great satirists um, who really were determined to puncture official egos the sort of gill rates of the 18th century knew really that because of the fashion for graphic gazettes and broadsides the Prince of Wales or William Pitt or Charles Fox were definitely going to see these pictures but weirdly even though uh, you know we're drowning in graphic messages they're very kind of pillarized and compartmentalized. So it's classic that, that Donald Trump is said to live entirely within his Fox News bubble. Oh, but he, he will know, won't he? Well, if he, well, if he, he cares, does know, he? if he does know and it does mind, you know, there's a certain kind of creative obtuseness about him, which will say, oh, yeah, but these are the same 
you know, fake media pinheaded intellectuals who hate me in America. So what? The peop- the real people really love me. And they- he obsessively watched Saturday Night Live, didn't he? I mean, he wonderfully had like, Yeah, but sat- yeah, he did, he did. Wonderful That's sense quite of true. Failure That's every, quite true. He kept Sunday on morning. saying how unfunny. <laughs> and um, actually, I think Alec Baldwin was quite unfunny, as a matter of fact, and not a good impersonator. I hate to ever agree with Donald Trump on anything. <laughs> um, but he could watch Saturday Night Live because, and here it gets to the number of it, Saturday Night Live compared to, say, Spitting Image, admittedly a long time ago, going back to Reagan and Thatcher, it's incredibly demure and it's kind of funny, but it's it's not a take-no-hostages kind of satire, really. So even if he saw it and was offended by the impersonation, it's unlikely, I think, actually, it would have deflated that balloon-sized ego. So do you think that, that Trump is a good thing for satire? Is he a gift to these people, or is... Is he a problem? I think, no, I, no, no, I, th- I think actually he is, just as he's the only one of the few definitely good things you can say about the effects of Donald Trump is that it seems to have mobilised political engagement all over America, not just on the two coasts, but right in the middle of the country and in certain obvious sections like a very large part of the female population. So who've become not just angry, but actually go down to local political party meetings. It's the top of the Democratic Party on the streets and in the schools and in the churches. Things are really happening. But Similarly, these people aren't necessarily mobilised by satire itself, are they? No, no, that's no, that's no, you're absolutely right. And I was um, I was swerving off the point. Astonishing, though, that may be. <laughs> no. <laughs> so those of you who know me, <laughs> what digression? Surely not, Simon. No, never. Uh, no, never. No, it's that actually it has turned late night news satire in America into e- extremely sharpened instruments. I would say particularly the most remarkable phenomenon is is this British comedian who was, sorry, John, even though he went to my college, I didn't know him there, John Oliver, you know, who was not very well known. I think we can all agree when he was here. Mm. But he's become an unbelievable hit on HBO and he absolutely is ferociously satirical then. I mean, it's, I don't know if you've seen yeah, it, no, but well, yeah, well, it, There was an argument that these people like John Oliver and Samantha Bee are actually covering Trump much more effectively than yeah. ordinary reporters are yeah. because they don't they have an absolute zero tolerance of bullshit yeah. and yeah, they don't have to give weight no. to a Trump side they can just say it as it is yeah they're and, totally unaffected by decorum the great you know awful sort of temperamental arthritis that comes over you know public radio as it sort of does here is the obligation to see all sides of an issue like you know it's very difficult to find all sides of the issue when you're separating two-year-olds from their parents, really. Um, If you want, you can interview people. And public radio in America has actually interviewed people who don't comment it as a good thing, but actually say, oh, it's the other agency's fault, or, you know, they were obliged to do this because a democratic law says so. They are invaluable, and they do cover better, because actually, particularly in John Oliver's case, it's, uh, it's somewhat the case with Samantha Bee and Steve Colbert, too. Well, who comes, Steve Colbert comes from a, you know, Republican background. He's good Catholic from Charleston, South Carolina. He's no raging lefty liberal at all. But in particularly in the case of John Oliver, he has, a, as with John Stewart um, earlier on, he has a very good hardcore factual news research team. So you actually get 
a lot of, uh, you know, absolutely substantially supported news reporting. In, in, but it is ultimately a cable show. It's not nightly news, you know. So there's an element, absolutely, of singing to the choir. It's so, funny, though, because sometimes it's not that funny. In that, I remember the one um, that John Oliver did just after Trump was elected, and actually, he was very kind of earnest. He was to, he was like talking like an yeah. activist, talking about yes. where you should go I and think donate, people like who that you should volunteer there, for. Actually, I think he was, for example. I think this also also happened with with Steve Colbert, but I remember uh, when I think it was the Charlie Hebdo murders happened or something. You know, he just sort of stopped everything really, or there was a moment where, or maybe it was one of the school shootings, and just absolutely directly addressed the camera with sort of gravitas of you know Latter Day Ed Murrow or someone like that. But it's difficult. We're all talking wishful thoughts, really, and we we absolutely won't know what the upshot of the deflation of pomp and ceremony until November the 6th, until that, you know, date. And there is a, there are a huge number of independent variables. Like, you can never underestimate the brilliance of the Democratic Party to screw things up. But Trump himself, does he not pose a problem to um, comedians generally that America's you know, the greatest joke in the whole history of American politics yes. becomes president? The size of the, the hyperbole, the, the absurdism, yeah. does, it, does that not actually put him beyond satire it does for his own base that magic word actually i think also because he's very you know he wouldn't be where he was were he not a showbiz personality absolutely defined entirely by the parameters of what he does which is the kind of brilliantly sleazed down vulgarization of public discourse you know here we go again, using words like discourse, FD words, broad, you know, broadsheet words, really. But he does what he does. So in that sense, he's he is absolutely kind of not just in your sense that he's too intrinsically comical to be satirized. I, I agree with you, he is. But also in that he exists in a, a completely different kind of bandwidth from the place where satire can reach. You know, if you see him in his rallies, he's making jokes. They're terrible jokes. They mostly consist, as they always have, of ridicule. They're very kind of facetious pieces of abusive ridicule, like, you know, Little Marco and uh, Lion Ted and mm. Crooked Hillary. Mm. They're mostly kind of schoolyard forms of flat-footed abuse. But he thinks but he's quite a wag. He, he thinks he's quite a wag, and <laughs> millions think he is. But it's the kind of, it almost comes from a place of, pre-literacy in the yes. to get your message that's across. That's a good place to be, to be in be politics now. Simple, repeated, simple, repeated, yes. and that's it. Well, the great trial now, whether for satire and comedy or for more extended forms of, you know, political interrogation, is what kind of language can you find to punch back? And, you know, the satirists are, again, doing a much better job than, you know, the New York Times, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune and Washington Post. You know, I mean, we need that too. We need serious, in-depth reporting. But they are kind of corseted within their own sense of decorum. How do you think that satirists have had to adapt to this completely new animal? Well, I think I think it's I don't think they've I don't think the writers of, of Saturday Night Live or Trevor Noah's programme and everything are sitting around the table, you know, before 
the show goes out beating their brains and saying, oh, you know, how can we possibly write something which does justice to the grotesque? They, they feel they're being fed by the grotesque, actually. So it, it's all coming to them. I mean, maybe we all think they should change the format of an opening monologue, or but it gets a tremendous howl of happy, derisive applause in the studio and beyond among those. So, so I think they feel maybe they're too complacent about that. But, I, you know, they know they... And this is where we had the conversation at the beginning. We're not quite sure whether he watches... It's, it's like all of us, you know, we tell ourselves because we're thin-skinned... I'm not bloody well going to read the bad reviews, but we do end up doing it actually, and feel like shit, you know, when that when that happens. And I suspect a bit of him does that as well. I think because he is such a kind of television network junkie, really, he probably does. Well, we know he so does, that, he's always going on about stories in, in papers. He, well, he and as we said, the Alec Baldwin thing. Yeah, no, it's said that he's he does actually read the so-called failing, non-failing New York Times all the time and every day. And I suspect that actually may be true. So in some sense, the satirists don't really have to grapple with the issue of, you know, are we doing enough to make him unhappy, actually, because they almost certainly are. There is a question, though, of what they're doing, what they're what they're changing, if anything, and who they're talking to. I mean, do you think that that's, that's an issue? Well, I, th- I think people like, you know, again, I've not done, and none of us, I, th- I suspect, have done demographic work on who particularly reaches the net- late-night network shows. That would be Colburn, Trevor Noah and, and, and Jimmy Kimmel. And those are still, you know, large network late-night broadcasting audiences. And they certainly do not only go to kind of self-congratulatory by coastal liberals like us. They go all over the country. But the deep question uh, about and whether it's sort of weaponized into a power shift in November, the issue is whether or not he's delegitimized as president. I mean, there was a the ex-military analyst for Fox News, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel somebody or other, was on, not on Fox News, but on MSNBC, I think, or CNN today, describing Trump as a malevolent fool, you know. And, you know, people like um, James Clapper and John Brennan, and all the kind of, you know, absolutely old institutional pillars of the CIA and the FBI and so on, just absolutely feel he's dragging America through the cloaca, you know. I suppose the difficulty is that he's discredited exactly those kind of people. So for them, for those people to, to discredit him... It's difficult. What well, I, as I say, we will, we will, as Donald Trump would say, we will see the most <laughs> irritating thing he says. You know, the base is not a majority. The base is 25 to 35%. So he won the election by going way over the base into places, like, as we know, by very little, into Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. The Democrats, to, for example, changed the power in the House only actually need to convert Republican seats in the middle of blue states like California. So those people are actually affected in, you know, really feel that some grotesque, sick joke has been perpetrated. I suspect many of them do, actually. We may Um, have deviated slightly from the point. Trump is is relatively, he's, he's unscathed by this tidal wave of comic abuse. And yet, I think that satire has had an effect, hasn't it? I think that Sean Spicer been characterised by Melissa McCarthy. Uh, right. That possibly end, was the end of him. Also, 
the President Bannon hashtag, maybe that did for Bannon as well, and yeah. the magazine cover, that actually that maybe there is some, that it has been effective in a, in a, in a concrete way. Um, well, it's done some harm, I suspect. You know, Trump is uh, notorious and his own base loves him for uh, sort of removing people like Sean Spicer from him, whom he believes are not serving the cause of institutional obsequiousness, not protecting him sufficiently from ridicule. But was it not that and, it was specifically a woman that portrayed Spicer that got Yeah, but he, Trump's of course, skin. actually, Spicer's replacement is a woman. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who served him extremely well, actually, by yes, and large. Yes, dead and, eyes. I know, but that's, you know, uh, dead eyes are a good counter to satire, really, in a way. Uh, just not listening and moving on. And she has this thing about looking down and shuffling her notes and going back. Do you think Trump has changed satire? Um... I, th- I think satire feels it's a civic duty now. It has to be, you know, has to be careful not really to be so obsessed with its own priestly vocation as to lose its witty edge. But I think it does does certainly think of itself as a kind of not last redort, but a very important kind of weapon in the artillery. But of is he not t- counterattack? Has he not tipped it into the sort of the land of obscenity? His own statements are obscene. Has he not therefore pushed it to the point where it's just screaming or it's just a big inflatable blimp? Which is frankly not a very funny joke, is it? I mean, it's no, great. I mean, no, I like it, really. it's fine, no, but I mean, really. it's not funny. No, no, not really. I think satire happens at many different levels and in many different languages in America as well. You know, it has a, there's a tendency in this country to think of as America as kind of profoundly, temperamentally unironic. That's absolutely not true, of course. You know, we're talking about Mark Twain, for example, you know, his absolutely massive artillery barrage against Theodore Roosevelt and the war in the Philippines or H.L. Mencken or, you know, I mean, you can go on and on and on, actually. So there's a kind of rich vein of absolutely ferocious satire in America. So I think if satire has been sleeping a bit since, well, the Reagan years or the Gerald Ford, Prattville time, it's certainly woken up. And I think it's uh, the issue is actually whether or not actually it delivers on social media. So somebody we haven't talked about who I love and I have no idea what his audience, because he's also on Facebook, is the great Randy Rainbow. Who We've, we've <laughs> been watching is, him. Have you? Yeah. Isn't yeah. he brilliant? Yes. Isn't he he's brilliant? fantastic. He is the best. <laughs> Those of you out there, go to Randy Rainbow right away. He does um, wonderful <laughs> musical parodies. Well, I quite wanted to play a clip that I thought actually yeah. not even a clip would would do justice because it's partly his facial expressions. It is, it is. And the sunglasses that he whips on. Pink glasses, and it certainly is. But if we can can summon everybody to... to, to download Randy Rambo. I was I was forget this is, this is me upload download and just load him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he's good though because he I mean he's good for lots of reasons but he's he's so camp and outrageous that yes. almost he's matching the sort of yes exactly. the surreal nature mm. of what it's like now. I mean I almost yes. I think if I was trying to make comedy now I'd well, in a way there's lots of material but actually it's it's so tricky because the stuff that's real is so much weirder as we were yes. saying i mean melania turning up at a migrant center for children yes. with this jacket on saying yes. i don't care I do don't, you it's yes. just i really you, don't if care you wrote do you. That, it would there seem is a great the melania impersonator but she has an italian name i'm so embarrassed i don't remember her. she is really wonderful um randy rainbow does live shows now he's, he's not only going viral but you know he does huge sellout live shows all around the country actually so what a thing <laughs> 
I'm cheering him on. I'm a huge fan. So in your, in your ideal world, how would you hope that this Trump visit will go? Oh, I don't, you know, I, as they said of our uh, glorious football team, I have very low expectations. <laughs> I, I, I don't think the fate, particularly actually since, it's extraordinary, there was a serious discussion in advance of the NGM meeting at Brussels about whether or not he'd play nicey-nicey or whether he would go ballistic. And, you know, when he went just beyond the realm of rant into some absolute <laughs> lunatic space of screaming... <laughs> that that you realise that question need never have been put. So that sort of thing, I think, actually is is much more important than any kind of. And you know, this but then particular he does something unhinged. You you'd, here, you'd hope for that. Oh, yeah. I absolutely hope for that. Yes, yes, I do. But what can that be? Really? And, I don't and also, know. if um, you can sort of yeah. snog the Queen or something, really, I guess it's probably <laughs> unlikely to happen. And he said he can hope also. Or put that... his arm round her. You know, I sort of hope for something like terribly low key. And English, but awful, like Theresa May standing in front of that slogan about building a better country and the, the letters slowly peeling off. <laughs> yes, I hope for be, something like that. That would be very good. The T, welcome president, and it would be rump rather than the T would collapse, actually. No, I'm That's hoping kind of for some we do quite well. misfortune on the golf course, really, is what I... Um, well, we know he cheats on the golf course, anyway, don't we? He's yes. I started to write a satirical novel. I had millions steered, actually, about Donald Trump. The end of the first chapter was him having a seizure in the bunker in the golf course. I'm rolling in the aisles. Mm. (laughs) Well, I think that if football can't come home, at least we can hope that he will go home. <laughs> yeah, you can be sure of that. Well, yeah, home being Moscow, you know. Well, exactly. indeed. Go so. back to his nuclear bunker. We know he's doing that. Simon, thank you very much for coming Great. to the podcast. It's a pleasure. In the midst of pain. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be discussing a play about the collapse of Lehman Brothers at the National Theatre. And I'll be talking to the provocative filmmaker, Lauren Greenfield, about her latest piece, Generation Wealth. We'd love to hear from you on Facebook or by email, everything else at ft.com. And please do leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizzanal. And our music is by Fatima. <laughs>